Uh, would you turn to Mark 11? We're going to be finishing Mark 11 today. Exciting. Uh, we're going to read verses 25 to 33. It's Mark 11 from verse 25. And whenever you stand praying... If you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Lord God, as we study your word now, we ask that you would help us to see the truth for what it is here. Help us to be able to stand more in awe of you, our Lord and Saviour. And may that in turn prompt us to apply these things to our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So as we start today, you might notice if you were here last week, there's a lot of similarity from where we started the reading in verses 25 and 26 to where we finished off last week, particularly in verses 22 through to 24. We can't just jump straight into verse 25 and separate it out from those verses that have come before it. Uh, That context word I mentioned last week presents itself again. Context is very, very important. So we do need to have a little bit of a recap from the things we saw verses 22 through 24 last week before we dive into verse 25. Now, as we did finish off in those verses last week, Jesus had just performed what we call the enacted parable of the fig tree, where he cursed the fig tree on one day, went into the temple, came back and the next day the fig tree was dead. And that was reflective of the dead nature of worship at Jerusalem and the the really overall, the the dead spiritual life of Israel as a nation at that time. Then Jesus taught his, his disciples very effectively that anyone who prays can and should pray big things. We can pray confident that God will do his will and that those things will happen. And true prayer, of course, is in accordance with God's will. Now, this is affirmed by the illustration that Jesus used in verse 23 of walking up to a mountain and saying, cast yourself into the sea. And if you say that without any doubt, the mountain will cast itself into the sea. Now, this, of course, captures the power of prayer because prayer is giving our praise, our requests, our supplications to the God who can do anything. So why would casting a mountain into the sea be too big a thing for the God who put that mountain there in the first place? Prayer is indeed wonderfully powerful. 
We finish with the words of Christ in Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you will have them. Again, prayer is powerful. Of course, we did note the caution that I've already briefly mentioned already that we can't just ask for whatever we want. Asking for a Ferrari, for example, we're going to be very disappointed. True prayer is something this Holy Spirit stirs up in us and is in accordance with God's will. And when we're praying, knowing that Scripture is our basis for prayer, we can pray with no doubts whatsoever that God will answer our prayers. And we left it there. I think we had to leave it there for last week, but the lesson on prayer isn't quite finished, as you would have noticed, verse 25 and 26 are all about that as we pick up today. And it continues. And we're at, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Now, just a quick note here. I spent a long time teaching youth ministry. And when this passage came up, some of the kids would say, so if I pray sitting down or lying down, do I get out of having to forgive the people around me? Because Jesus says here, when you stand to pray, what we need to understand there is the physical posture of prayer all through the Old Testament, which is one we don't often follow today. Some of us were talking about this before the prayer meeting last week, was that prayer was conducted standing. You stood to pray. So Jesus isn't just talking about the prayers that you pray when you're standing up. There's not a loophole for teenagers to get out of here. This is all of our prayers. When we pray, there is stuff here that we have to pay attention to. And the stuff we have to pay attention to is actually an incredibly fundamental part of prayer, and that is forgiveness. We see Christ talk here about forgiveness of our trespasses, which is another word for our sins, forgiveness of our sins by God, and also our willingness to forgive others for their sins. And we struggle with this. I think there's two ways in which we can struggle in applying what Jesus says here. The one I struggle with the most, my personal struggle of praying forgiveness, is when somebody has done the wrong thing by me, I don't naturally want to forgive them. My natural inclination of my heart is to be hard, and to not pray for forgiveness that there might be reconciliation. There are times where I might even slip into thoughts of vengeance at times, and this is wrong. We can struggle with this with a hardness, and there are times where the hurts that we have suffered that lead to this, and I'm assuming I'm not the only one who's ever struggled with this in prayer, the things that can lead to this have been enormous. It could have been enormous physical hurt being caused by somebody. It could be enormous emotional hurt. It could be psychological hurts. It could be somebody has told us something that deeply affected our relationship with God, a deep spiritual hurt 
that has led us down the garden path into believing and practicing things we later find out are just so far from what God's word actually says. These are things that we might never fully recover from this side of heaven. We know we're going to heaven, whether we know more tears or hurt or pain or suffering. And maybe we think, well, it's going to be easier to talk to them then. We'll just hold off until then. But Jesus says, if we have something against somebody, we need to forgive them in our prayers now. It can be a hard thing because of our own hardness of heart to forgive people when we pray. As I said, I've been there and I'm sure many of us have been there. But the command given by Jesus here is that when we pray, we must be willing to forgive others. We must forgive others. Now, I said there's two ways I think we struggle with this. I think the expressions are many. But I think the other way in which we struggle in terms of actually praying for forgiveness from other people and being, having a forgiving attitude to people is that we can sometimes just have a, a forgive and forget mentality. Somebody did the wrong thing by us, don't worry about it, just move on. We'll paper over that, we'll pretend that never happened, we take a light and breezy, we take a blasé approach to it, but there's this thing in the back of our mind where we're not quite reconciled with that person because we haven't dealt with it in an appropriate way. We can either be too blasé or we can be too hard and whichever one of those we might tend to go towards, we can fall into the, the, the bad trap of not practising what Christ says here. If we take the just forgive and forget or if we take the just, no, I can't forgive that person for what they've done to me, we aren't falling into and practising the biblical view of forgiveness, which repentance uh, of reconciliation, which forgiveness is part of. Colossians 3.13, which we read before, has the word must in there. We are commanded to do something. We must do something in Colossians chapter 3, verse 13. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, this would be a nice thing to try every once in a while. It's you must Forgive others as Christ forgave you. The command there is that as Christians, we must be a forgiving bunch of people. And what we see in Colossians is very helpful for what that looks like in practice. Because it gives a pattern of what forgiveness and full reconciliation look like. I've preached on this, uh, I think it was about term four in 2019 when I preached through Colossians. I did a prayer meeting devotion on this a little while ago. This is worth talking about because I don't think we get forgiveness right very often. Colossians 3.13 has a pattern of forgiveness laid out there. Forgive others as Christ forgave you. God is a forgiving God. He is a merciful God. He is a loving God. But we were not forgiven for our sins until the Holy Spirit moves us to repent for our sins. If that's not true, then everyone is going to heaven, which we know is not the case. We were not forgiven for our sins until the Holy Spirit moved us to repent and to confess for our sins. 
And God, of course, having already paid the price for our sins, which Colossians 2.14, every requirement of the law was nailed to the cross. Christ did it. He paid the price for our sins. God, having paid the price for our sins, stood ready to forgive us the moment the Spirit moved us to repentance. And that is to be our attitude, the attitude there that we are to always stand in readiness to forgive the moment or brother or sister who's wronged us repents. This side of heaven, reconciliation of somebody actually repenting for things they've done wrong may not be fully realised. But the full biblical understanding of reconciliation requires both an attitude of repentance for the one who's done wrong and an attitude of being willing to forgive. Now, Christ, of course, focuses on the willing to forgive side in what he teaches here. If we want to think about that, if reconciliation is not fully achieved, what does that look like? It was described to me one time by a scientist who had to use words like kinetic energy, which fortunately I'd done just enough sports science to understand. Big words. It being potential kinetic energy. For example, if I was to hold my keys here, they would have kinetic energy if they move. Kinetic is just moving. They would have energy while they're moving. While I'm holding my keys there, they don't have any moving energy. There's no kinetic energy to them. But I'm ready to release them. It is potential kinetic energy. And that is the attitude that we need to have in prayer. That when somebody has done wrong by us, we have to stand ready to forgive that the moment they repent, it's released, it's in action, it is done. It's not continuing to hold on longer. That is the attitude that Christ is encouraging us to think of here. And it is hard, as I said. Sometimes we just go, just forget it, we'll move on. Other times we go, it's too big a hurt that I have suffered to forgive you. Consider our sin. Christ doesn't just call us here to forgive others. He also calls our sins before God into view. Your trespasses, as Mark calls them here in, uh, as Christ calls them here in Mark 11, they are many and they are gross. My sins are many and they are gross. On the drive here this morning, I happened to have a, a song come on. Uh, Spotify don't always do a great job with their shuffling songs. I had a helpful one come on this morning. His Mercy is More by Matt Boswell, B-O-S-W-E-L-L. Now, it's, it's simple in a lot of ways. Then that song, Matt Boswell talks about how many sins he has committed against God. But God's mercy is more. His mercy is more. God despite all of my many and gross sins, has forgiven me. He has forgiven me because the Holy Spirit moved me to repentance of sin. And if the Holy Spirit has moved you to repentance of sin, his mercy is more than your sins. We have done far more against God than anyone will probably ever do or definitely ever do against us. The attitude to be forgiving in prayer is one that seems hard, and it is hard, but it's one that Christ himself had. 
at this point in Mark's gospel, he is within a week, less than a week, from being hung on the cross to die for our sins. Not for his sins, for my sins and your sins. We are not being asked to do anything more than what Christ has already done. In fact, we are asked here to do less. It's a heavy command. And while we don't do things just for the reward or just to to avoid punishment, we see here that refusing to have this humility present in our prayer lives and considering people around us, even hurtful people, results in our own trespasses not being forgiven. Not because we earn forgiveness by forgiving other people. To, to be a Christian is to follow Christ's example. When he came, he died on the cross that our sins could be forgiven. And if we refuse to follow him in demonstrating that same attitude of forgiveness, we are not standing with the things of God. Why would we expect to be forgiven if we stand counter to God? Now, I know that's a lot on two verses. I'm not going to spend as long on the next couple to get through the rest of the chapter. The reason why I have spent longer on that than I normally would on two verses is because it's important to dig into forgiveness. It's something we don't deal with very well most of the time. We don't often see what Scripture says about this. And as a a broken sinner, I myself need to be reminded of everything I've just said. But we move on. Mark moves us on. His punchiness in writing keeps us moving. And Jesus, for the third day in a row, from verse 27 onwards, comes into Jerusalem. And for the second consecutive day, he comes into the temple. When Jesus left the temple the day before, we had the chief priests and the scribes plotting to destroy him. Now we enter into what we might consider their den once more, and this time they have backup. It's not much, but you might note there that previous last week we left with the chief priests and the scribes plotting to destroy him. This week we have the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. They have backup. Now, we don't want to cast people in a poor light. They were upset with what Jesus had done the day before. Sometimes it is appropriate when somebody does something we don't like that we take time away, we think and pray and go, am I responding because I'm upset? Or am I responding to this because I think it's wrong by God? Now, unfortunately, that's not why these guys went away. They just have more backup to push their agenda. And they begin a discussion with Jesus and we see something significant. They're out to destroy him. They're out to destroy him, they're out to get him, but they have no proof of misconduct. The crowds are there, the crowds were supporting Christ still. They haven't turned against him this week yet. If these guys had some tangible evidence of what Jesus had done the day before, turning over the temple, uh, turning over the, the moneylenders' tables, driving them out, if that was wrong, if he had misquoted scripture, they would come out and openly proclaim it today to put this man to shame, to finish what he was doing once and for all. But they have no proof. They don't present anything. They're sick of Jesus. They want him gone. A day later, they still can't find a place where Jesus has gone against God's word. He's taught them effectively from the Old Testament. So they go digging. Now ask a question. 
And this one is an interesting one. By what authority do you teach? Who said you could do this? Now, they've tried this one before. Even without being asked this question before, like when Jesus healed the paralysed man, he's already answered this question. We know where Jesus' authority comes from. So there's people here, let's try and trap him. And if he actually says that his authority comes from God, then he is claiming to be God with the things he has said. We can string him up for that. It's just a politically charged scene we see here in the temple. And something else to note with what they ask in this question. Who told you you could do this? By what authority do you do this? They are politically distancing themselves from Jesus. Now, as Israelites, they probably both greatly desired a revolution to overthrow Rome, but also greatly feared it in equal amounts. Things are gaining momentum, possibly towards that. If the Romans come down in a week and a half and say, why would you let this guy do this? Them publicly asking Jesus now, who said you could do this, is them saying, no, we didn't support him. We recognise none of our authority given to this guy to teach. We're the scribes, the elders and the chief priests. We haven't said he can do what he's doing. Punish the silly little peasants over there who followed him. But we had nothing to do with that. We're fine. We've asked this guy who said he could do what he he was doing and we, we didn't. It's clever. On a lot of levels... It's a very, very clever and cunning question for them to ask. But it's not clever enough, is it? I very nearly called this sermon Wily Wisdom. I actually texted a mate and said, what do you think about that for a sermon title? And he said, yeah, that's a good one. And when he said it was good, I thought, yeah, that's too far. So I didn't follow through with that. But there's an incredible wisdom coming through from Christ here. very clever but Christ's wisdom is unmatched this cleverness is not going to undo it and Christ did have authority and Christ had a higher authority than anything they could bestow upon him he had higher authority than their own than anybody of people now I don't always appreciate in fact I rarely appreciate when people answer my questions with another question but sometimes it is the wise thing to do And Jesus shows this here. Let me answer with a question. You answer my question, I'll answer you. Was John's baptism, you know, John the Baptist, the guy that you had no problem with being beheaded? Was his baptism from heaven or was it from men? I look at that and go, well, that's not too hard to answer. But there's problems. These guys are politically minded. And this question is one that they cannot answer and save face. Verse 31 shows us they have a big problem answering it. They had not believed John. They had not believed John. There had been no change in their practice since John came around. The people had probably noticed, hey, you're not actually doing the things John said. Did you believe him or not? This question is probably bringing that up in people's minds. But there's no real change. They didn't believe John. In fact, they, by their practices, tried to suppress the truth that John taught and tried to suppress the truth that John was indeed a prophet sent by God. But if they admitted that, 
and the people would lose all confidence in them. In a house that was meant to care for people's souls, to be a place of prayer and a place of worship, political correctness and just grabbing at power was winning at the hearts of the scribes and the chief priests and the elders. It should break our hearts to read this because I think we find ourselves in their shoes at times too. In reflection, we realise just how wrong this is before God. Not giving an honest answer because of how it will make us look. So these guys can't say that John's baptism came from heaven, which is really saying it came from God because they didn't listen to John, they didn't believe John. And they can't say it came from men because the people whose affections they were trying to play right now, they really liked John. And they thought that it had come from heaven. It's a catch-22 for them. But in the end, they give a sad little pathetic whimper of an answer. We don't know. We see from their discussion they do know. This is a lie. They know, but they just don't want to say the truth. Jesus said, well, you won't answer me. I'm not going to answer you. Honestly, fair enough. You so-called spiritual leaders refuse to give a spiritual answer. You're not going to get an answer from me. Why would you understand my answer about spiritual things if you can't even give a simple, correct answer about this? But we know from everything we've read up to this point, we know from what's inferred in Jesus' question here, the answer to the question that Jesus asks. The authority by which Jesus taught, the authority by which Jesus performed miracles, the authority by which Jesus had forgiven sin, the authority by which Jesus had raised people from the dead, the authority by which he had cast out demons... The authority by which he had overthrown the day before this, the ungodly practices in the temple, and so much more was the authority of God the Father, the one who rules in heaven. Now, this might seem like a no brainer. We we might go, we know that answer. But the implications of that answer and what that should make us do in our lives is huge. Everything. Everything that Jesus did and said came with the full endorsement of God the Father. If it comes with that, if we believe in Jesus, we should sit up and we should listen. This is the work of God. These are the words of God. So how do we treat this? It should excite us. How often do we read our Bibles, though? And do we read our Bibles just to tick it off on the daily to-do list? Does your family do devotions? Do you do personal devotions as well as having a family devotion time? When you come to worship, do you come hungering for the truth of God's word when we have it read publicly each week? Do we look forward to engaging in the word of God. How dusty is your Bible? 
Maybe how dusty is your prayer life, going back to what we see in verses 25 and 26. What we see in verses 25 and 26 and what we touched on in our prayer meeting the other night and before worship this morning is that prayer should cover a whole range of things. There should be praise for God. There should be repentance. There should be confession of sin. There should be bringing our request before God. Does our prayer life reflect those things or does our prayer life just consist of Praying for Aunt Maud's sore toe. Does your prayer life include those hard, painful at times, but vital prayers for forgiveness and that God would open the door for that in people's hearts? See, this passage might just look like a Another simple story we know of Jesus. Another confrontation with some people who didn't like him. But these are the questions that this passage should stir up within us. It comes with the underlying question of if Jesus did the things he did by God's authority, how seriously do we take God? If you love me, You will keep my commands, Christ said. We need to assess that for ourselves honestly, earnestly, and with a whole heap of prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for what we see here of our Lord and Saviour. We thank you for his wisdom. We thank you for the hard but necessary lesson he has taught us on prayer and to pray for forgiveness. Lord God, may we do the things that we see here. May we have the humility, knowing that we are nothing but sinners saved by your grace, to pray prayers for forgiveness. May we put aside our hurt. May we put aside our dismissive attitude. May we take your word seriously in every part of our lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.